This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. Um, Joining us all the way from Honkers, HK, the plus 852. Don't call it that. Um, We would like to welcome my good mates, uh, Dano and Joe. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, Yeah, now now to introduce uh, Dano and Joe, um, they've spent 24 years in the design research field, founders of... uh, the uh, Hong Kong UX uh, group, and uh, most recently have uh, put together a very interesting book that we want to get into today, which is entitled Make Meaningful Work from Sleepwalking to Sparkle, a learning platform to develop 21st century transferable soft skills. It's uh, it's out on Amazon right now, so if you want to check it out. Um, but today we thought we'd get into the future of work um, and um, let me start, guys, with, um, you know, the pandemic obviously produced a significant change in working practices, having us work from home with quarantines and so forth. And, and, and you know, in, in Hong Kong, of course, the quarantine situation has been somewhat tougher than in other places around the world. But having said that, how likely was it that working from home would have become such a big part of working practice without the pandemic, do you think? I think even before (laughs) the um, pandemic, in the Hong Kong context, many people bring home their their work already for for a long time. I think the pandemic just make it um, like clearer in front of their eyes. It wouldn't surprise me it will happen more yeah. You think now that people have had a taste of working from home, definitely we see now with, uh, you know, um, Gen Zs in particular, but to some extent with millennials, um, you know, if an employer is saying, no, you have to come to the office, many of them are just opting out of those jobs and looking for alternatives, you know, whether that is gigging economy work or whether that is looking for employers that allow them more flexibility. Um, and, and you know, we've had some big names trying particularly, um, you know, in, in the UK, in the US, trying to you know, wrangle people back into the office, and that's been fairly unsuccessful, it would appear. Um, so from from a cultural shift perspective, do you see this as a permanent um, change in the way we're working? From my, from my perspective, so a few, a few things, like the pandemic was a huge event uh, globally, and I still think people are processing that, uh, both in terms of the you know, the health and wellness aspect of it that can't be avoided, uh, but but also the the ramifications that it's having socially and economically on, on people. It's been a huge shift. I mean, 
when we were going to school, uh, we we probably would not not have predicted such such a future uh, where there would have been a pandemic. And then in reference, you mean to you mean last century when you were going to school last century? Sorry, that I that's a... school, when I went to school <laughs> back in 16th century. <laughs> in in the late twentieth century, that's how the millennials refer to it. Right? <laughs> when we were, you know, we were we were still riding bicycles. Yes, <laughs> dodging kangaroos. Yes. Um, but the it's had it's had it's had ramifications on on people on context and and naturally what comes with that is it's going it's had ramifications impact on behaviour because we're so, we're social beings so it's going to have impact on behaviour and part of that shift in a work context has been oh now I've got I've been I've been enforced a choice which I may or may not like because there was a if we if we recall there was a um, a friction or a onboarding when it came to working from home as well in the early right. days of the pandemic. Right. Yeah. I've got, to, I've got to be around kids, and I don't particularly want to be around my spouse, and I've got poor internet connection, and I miss my colleagues. But as people shifted and transitioned through that, they got used to this idea of, hey, hang on a minute, maybe maybe there can be another alternative from working uh, in the office to working in an, in another space. I think the I think what it's going to have is it's going we we talk about three um, kind of pillars I guess in my meaningful work which is character leadership and culture and I think this shift is going to affect it's going to affect all all three and I'll finish with this because it's a it's a great question I uh, I think it's we can't apply the same observations to every work context because I think we're primarily talking about knowledge work but there's other types of work where people didn't have the choice. They had to go in uh, to work, even with all the safety concerns. So, yeah. I don't know if you guys know Gary Vaynerchuk, but um, um, Gary is a a well-known celebrity influencer, um, started off with an online wine business and has become sort of a global brand in his own right. But he he says that um, for the younger kids today, entering the workforce have so many choices because they get how to, um, you know, in terms of their digital life, they get and understand the opportunities for gigging work and, um, you know, side gigs and so forth in in that space. And so you're not going to be able to get these kids in into a paid salary position for under a hundred grand because if they've got the flexibility of working for themselves earning 70 or 80 grand on a on a gigging in a gigging economy sense why would they come into an office you know doing nine to five for a little bit of extra cash um so part of that is you know is what sort of environment are we creating that is challenging that is exciting that is flexible um but this is not how um, Wall Street has um, helped us as corporations to think about employment and work, particularly if you, you know, work in an economy like the United States. Um, so from that, that leadership and cultural perspective, in, in the book, how do you frame the need, the need or the, the process for creating these true leaders and you know cre- creating people that um, uh, can can generate this sort of culture that um, that's attractive from a working perspective. It's a really good question again, 
Wow, Brett's got very good questions. This is great. <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll frame this and then I'm going to hand over to Joe pretty quickly. I, I think um, what underpins your question and it's, and it's important and it's, it's language. Language is really interesting, right, because language does impact uh, how we think and how we behave. But there's a lot, and I'm going to use this term um, because it's a term that's still used, which is human resources, which sounds so crude to me. Yeah, now. human capital and human resources, like we're, resources. like we're cattle. Yeah, exactly. Very industrial age type of language. But the one of the important human resource um, uh, themes, and also coming from um, management, is this uh, this idea of attraction and retention. And the attraction and retention story or narrative, we, we talk a lot about narratives in, or authentic narratives in Make Meaningful Work. Part of that narrative is to say, well, how do we attract or, or to be more specific, how do we attract talent and how do we retain talent? And I think a significant amount of that story, as you've indicated, has been about salary and what you're paying people. But I think the um, not just younger people today, I think this is creeping into uh, all age groups today are beginning to say, well, hang on, what the pandemic, we started with the question of the pandemic. It's created this in, enormous emotional or cognitive shift in people to say, you know, may, maybe maybe work isn't everything or maybe perhaps even yes, money. Yeah. Salary isn't everything. Maybe I need to, I'm not saying this in a necessarily a deep or philosophical way, although we can go that way in this discussion. No, I agree. But there is a there is a lot of thinking, um, rightly so, people to say there has to be more to a place. If you're going to attract me to a geographical or a digital location, there has to be more to that place than just equal to KPIs and productivity and deliverables and transactions and process and outputs. And part of our story, and then I will hand to Joe, part of our story when we talk about We've got a tool in, in Make Meaningful Work. We've actually got two tools. One is called Practice Spotting and the other one is called uh, a Make Meaningful Work Guided Practice Journal. But implicit and or explicit in, in both of those tools is this idea of a reflective practice. And so this idea is that what's missing in, in work today as a hangover from eight, uh, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century industrial age work, because the industrial age has been with us for 200 years, is what's happened is, is we, we've got into this mode of transactional ways of working to a point where we have already become incredibly dehumanised and robotic as a result of that. And so what we're trying to explicitly promote and champion through the book is this idea of tools that enforce in a way, in a nice way, or help people practise reflection equal to what we call soft skills, equal to what we call practices, goes by different names, competencies, soft skills, practices, power skills, they're all the same things. But the idea is that we're deliberately and intentionally, we call it connect and contextualise, we're intentionally trying to connect the softer skills that are already implicitly at work all the time. It's happening on this call while we're talking. There's soft skills always at play. But what we're trying to do is connect that and map that to the hard skills equal to job roles so that people start to put a lot more onus on the softer parts of work but not to see that as uh, necessarily a spiritual thing or a retreat thing 
or a yoga meditation thing. It's actually a very practical thing, but we have to put more emphasis on, emphasis on that because that's what's going to go towards making these workspaces and, dare I say, these work practices more human. Joe, do you have some thoughts to share? Yeah, I can give you another um, perspective, really culture. So culture, we defined it as the interactions between um, the interactions and relationships between people, right? And um, the culture or the environment is made up of mainly three elements, the people, the time, and the place that you're in at that particular moment, right? And in terms, in terms of the, the waiting, like people is the most um, like important in that, in that cultural role that you Right, play. because if, if people have dysfunctional relationships, it's very difficult to, to exactly. collaborate in a working environment. Exactly, exactly right. So um, I want to um, like quote a Confucius way of thinking and philosophy. So it, it, it's, it's uh, I put it in the book as well. It's it, In Cantonese, it's so oh, everything. okay. <laughs> you, understand, you understand that. My canto is a little rusty, but moment I, I just had this feeling that was coming from Brett. I don't know why. <laughs> Love it. Everything starts with the individual. So you need to continuously better and improve as an individual in terms of hard knowledge, your mindset and attitude, your values and your, your, your beliefs and all these inner qualities within a person. Then you can, you're, you're more capable of managing or, or, or contribute to a family context. Then you can contribute more to your clan in, in the old old ancient times. So sure. it's the tribe. The family, the, yeah, the clan, the tribe. And then if you're capable and, and doing that well, you're qualified or you're, you're, you're better equipped to managing the nation. So everything starts with the person. So that's why in our three pillars, it starts with the character building. And then the leadership, and then the culture. Okay, so so let's. Um, I mean, obviously, trying to create flexible working structures, trying to accommodate these sort of different working styles. Um, you know, working working from home or working from where you are. You know, we have a lot of digital nomads now, and so forth, uh, adopting uh, different working styles. How do you create this tight culture when you have people working? away from each other in separate locations. So we've thought about that as well, and it's actually more to share with you and, and the audience. It's a more recent uh, insight, actually, because we've been at this implicitly and explicitly for a number of decades now, but more explicitly for 10 years in researching uh, the book, which is a significant amount of time to invest. And that included, you know, speaking with, presenting to literally thousands of literally thousands of people. Um, but uh, what we were looking for is I was describing it as the uh, the pointy end or the sharp end of the Make Meaningful Work story. Like what what is it what is it that we're really trying to do? What's the, I guess the cliche would be the rubber hits the road moment. 
And what we've come up with, and this is literally the last couple of months. These, these cliches are a dime a dozen, man. Oh, I've got a whole list here that I'm referring to, actually. So just throw them in. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, a rolling stone gathers no moss. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, so what is it that we're really doing here and, and, and how do we land it in a way that starts with character that personalises this and makes people feel that they're taking responsibility for the leadership and the culture and they're, they're inserting meaning into what they're doing because we're not talking about searching for meaning. We're talking about inserting meaning into what you do. And the three things we came up with is what we call the three M's and they relate to the character leadership and culture. So what are they? The first M is motivators, right? So the idea is why do I do what I do? Start with that. So a lot of people are, and we see this in Hong Kong, but it's not unique to Hong Kong. A lot of people, certainly in the industry that you know very well in terms of finance and banking, a lot of people that are rocking up to work and, and, and doing their work, but they're, not, they're probably not entirely clear on what motivates them to do so. So there's the motivator aspect of that. The second M as part of the three M's is moments. So that is in practice spotting, there are three steps. One is record, record equal to a story. The second step in, in practice spotting is to reflect what's happening explicitly and implicitly. And the third step in practice spotting is a practice card equal to moving words to action, taking action. Within a story, there are moments. And you, you'll hear the word moments used quite a lot in sport. They'll talk about key moments in a game. So moments are really important. Moments are happening. There's hundreds, if not thousands, of moments happening within a person's day. But what's the key moments for you? And how do you then apply the practices, soft skills equal to those moments? And then the third M, Brett, is um, mindset and attitude. And so what are, the, what are these three M's, in mean, what are they meaning to do? What do they equal? They equal what we call an authentic narrative. So what does that mean practically? It means that if we were to spend time working, say, in an in-person and or a distributed team, let's say the future of work says that it's going to be hybrid in some shape or form, we have to be really clear on what the three M's are for us individually and also what those three M's are for us collectively. And that way, the idea here should be, the test of it should be, we shouldn't have to talk about culture or values and just talk about it. We should clearly understand collectively what our motivations are, what moments we're applying our practices, what it means for mindset and attitude equal to our collective authentic narrative. And that should be, the, that should be in essence, the representation or the iterative representation of character leadership. Okay, but let's but but let's like actually delve into like the challenges of of twenty first century leadership, particularly in an environment where you know if we're going to be increasingly leveraging automation, then we have to be able to find human skills that differentiate from the pure processing and logic side. So you, you've already talked about the softer skills. Um, but, uh, you know, from a cultural perspective, this is a big leap. 
from where analytical skills, uh, you know, project management skills, um, you know, highly technical skills have been um, more valued, particularly, say, you know, in in the last uh, 50 years in in the, you know, um, information technology age. But, you know, we've now got this flip where, well, things that you you would have had to learn from a technical perspective, um, you know, processing information, um, you know, calculating spreadsheets, all this sort of stuff, that's all going to disappear because a machine will be able to do it better than you. Um, But from a cultural perspective, this requires quite different organisational design at the heart of it. So what are the types of roles that are central to creating that type of culture then? You know what? What different from today? No, it's not a HR manager anymore, right? This is, um, uh, you know, this is really about um, almost like a a a systems architect for people. You know, yeah. um, so how 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 you know in in twenty years time, who who is the architect of the culture of of a business from a working practice perspective? I'll talk to that briefly, then I'll hand over to Joe. I. I, I... I think it's like it's a future question, clearly, and there's going to be a shift of titles and roles. But I, I'll pick one that I think is his, historic, present, and future, and that is a, a huge driver in make meaningful work and underpinning is continuous uh, learning and development. And so the idea is it, there must be a role, a chief role, or a distribution of putting uh, responsibility and onus on the the importance of constant learning and development. And if we're, if we're not providing the space for that, if we're going to continue to treat people like robots and continue to focus just on transactional stuff, uh, it's, it's going to have a, de- it's going to have a, degrad- it's going to have a brain drain, cognitive, emotional drain on work. And it's going to affect, it's actually going, it sounds self-serving to say so, so we can treat it as a, as a hypothesis. But it's gonna it's gonna have a degradation on the competitiveness um, of of businesses because they're not they're not focusing on the softer side or the spaces to create learning and development for people. So it comes back to the attraction retention. They're not going to attract the talent, and they're not going to be able to nurture the talent in it. So I would say I don't know if it's a role or a series of roles associated with learning and development, but don't don't treat learning and development as a separate thing bake it in, codify it as part of, of 21st century work. Joe, go, go ahead. Um, I think we need to change the mindset and attitude on when we're hiring people. So for the past, I don't know, 100, 200 years, it's what skills you're bringing in right. I can exploit, basically. Right? So uh, in exchange, I'll give you money. Yes. I think that's why we focus on the hard skills and we dehumanize ourselves. Well, we don't, but workplaces do. And yes. and the workers um, that work yeah. with us. And that is um, why we've seen so many decisions made that is so disconnected with ourselves and our nature. Right. And that's what's happening. So Joe, Joe, let me let me drill down on that a little bit and ask you a follow up, um, which is, you know, a- as we get more 
um, autonomous, um, you know, smart economies, highly automated economies, um, and the nature of work changes, perhaps even where salary becomes disconnected from work in that we might receive a universal basic income, for example, um, and then your work is no longer um, a job you do to put food on the table. Now you have a choice of, of what to do. This is sort of be an ideal environment, one would think, in the future um, for us to pursue things that we're, we're um, interested and concerned about. When someone says, what do you do? Instead of us describing something that puts food on the table and a roof over their heads, you can now talk about something you invested in. It, 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 you know, how, how, how do you see that um, process emerging, Joe? Um, I think when we, so I, we've seen people that work on more softer skills as well, but if we learn soft skills the same way as hard skills, we're not reactivate all those senses that human had, right? Um, and that's why our tool is more on how do we open up the senses and the perspectives of people? And connect and, and contextualise yeah, the practices in action. Exactly. Because a, a lot of the times we keep talking about these soft skills but not... Applying it. Yeah, not applying it and, and convert it into small actions that we can do. Because I think it's it's not either top-down or, or bottom-up type of um, structural change like... like um, when we when we study, it's like oh, this organizational change, and and you need to you need to prepare all these processes. I think it's it's it, it comes from both both sides um, because of all these new young people. They don't see things as as the factory ways of organizing things, and also how can we how can we um, get people to be more aware of each other's behavior? Because a lot of the times, I think. Um, these bad behaviors can can exist in our world because we put up with it. Because we, we let them, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sometimes we don't even aware of it. And right? also, and and yeah. and that that we're trying to we're trying to come to get come together to think of a better term. Like, what's the contextual? How do we find plus, common purpose? Yeah. yeah com- the, the contextual plasticity of all right. of us. We need we need to bring that back. Well, cog, cog, cognitive and contextual plasticity, and I'm watching the time. Cognitive and, and contextual plasticity, flexibility, adaptability. These are becoming more important. Uh, adaptability is certainly critical in an environment where things change so frequently, as as the pandemic demonstrated. So, if you're if very rigid in your working practice as an organisation or as an individual, you're screwed, right? So, so listen, guys. I know we've run out of time, but let me ask you this: um, you know, where can people find out more about the book and about the uh, you know the the three pillars you spoke of and and um, some of the more practical aspects of generating meaningful work work behavior and culture i think the best place to start is just go to do people even say dub 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 anymore yes yeah we do it's it's allowed yes dub 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 dot make meaningful work dot com i'll repeat it without the r 
www.makemeaningfulwork.com and you'll see the book on the front cover on the homepage and, and then uh, and you'll be able to get the book uh, on Make Meaning, on uh, Amazon, pardon me. Very cool. Well, thank you both for joining the show. Um, it, it's 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 a it's been a long time between drinks, as they say, um, uh, but uh, hopefully um, the the book will do better than St Kilda's doing this year. <laughs> well, I, I think if there's ever a universal truth, that's that's a universal truth. I think everything <laughs> will be better than St Kilda next year. <laughs> All right. Well, listen. Hey, um, Joe Wong and and Dan Ozuk. Thanks for joining us on uh, Breaking Banks. All the best with the book. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having us. You may already have payments embedded into your software platform, but do you have flexibility around how those payment experiences are created? What about control over your pricing or ability to use your own branding? Chances are you probably don't. Discover WorldPay for Platforms a payments platform that puts you in control and puts your software customers first. This all-in-one payment facilitation platform offers more than just embedded payments. With WorldPay for Platforms, take advantage of a full set of solutions, including professional managed and advisory services to enhance your business. Make your software even better with a solution that easily integrates and adapts to your needs, helping you create experiences beyond payments. Discover the possibilities you can unleash with WorldPay for platforms. Visit fisglobal.com slash WorldPay platforms to get started today. Welcome to the NextGen Banker podcast, where we explore what's next in banking and talk with the innovators responsible for creating positive change in the financial sector. I am your host, David Ryling, and I am super excited today to welcome Marilyn Waite, Marilyn, welcome to the Next Gen Banker podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So, Marilyn, I am absolutely fascinated uh, with your work career and path, and I'm I've seen it or understand that it ranges from Madagascar to France to China to the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit about your career and uh, in sustainability, and in particular your focus in sustainability finance? Yes. My early training was as a civil and environmental engineer. So concrete, steel, water, wastewater, using more chemical processes. And so there was already an anchoring of environmental sustainability in those principles, in those concepts. I think what drove home more of the social sustainability side was when I spent time in Madagascar. So my first job from my first degree was in Madagascar, working on water resources with the United Nations in the more rural south of the country. And what happened was we went for a couple of months without reliable electricity. And that really shifted my focus towards both the private sector, private finance included, and also to clean energy, reliable energy, affordable energy, because I saw that without the electricity being reliable, the local businesses were shutting down, right? So refrigeration companies at that time, cyber cafes, I know we don't really think about uh, cyber cafes anymore, but they were a thing at one point. And all of these things had an impact on the local economy. So that really caused the big shift. And from there, I started to work on 
sustainability and engineering in a more profound way, and then eventually entered the nuclear and renewable energy sector in France. And that's when ultimately, while I was working in R&D, technical economic studies, bringing new technologies to market, I found that a lot of our challenges were more on the finance and investment side than on the engineering or project management side. So that was another shift that I made through experience, really, and then shifted to China, uh, shipped myself to China from France, and um, was working on a lot of things in China, and eventually came back to the States to lead a climate, clean tech, clean energy practice, uh, and a seed capital firm, which led me to what I'm doing today, which is, I wear multiple hats, and my main hat is leading the Climate Finance Fund, um, which is philanthropically supported by the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and hosted by the European Climate Foundation. And really, it's a strategy across those different geographies, so China, the European Union, and the United States, all about mobilizing capital through three primary pools of capital, venture capital, asset management, and of course, and most importantly, bank lending and credit. Fantastic. And can I just ask you, when, uh, from your perspective, when you think about sustainable finance from that global lens, uh, how does the U.S. compared to Europe, compared to Asia, how would you kind of think about those things in terms of maybe the, the geographics of who's progressing faster or slower? Right. So I think even the term sustainability is quite rooted in a certain cultural norm that doesn't apply everywhere. So I, I think, for example, if when sustainability was being developed as a concept, right, as a phrase from the United Nations and other influencers, let's say, if China had been at that point, you know, this major economy that it is today, I think maybe we would have used a different word or phrase. So, for example, I think in China, there's a lot more focus on health on being healthy, right? And that comes from traditional Chinese medicine. It comes from all these other cultural influences. And I think um, that kind of health lens is one way in which people understand the concept within China. And you could, you could say that about many parts of the world, but there's a certain angle and understanding of it that is pronounced in China more so than other, some other parts of the world. I think also um, there's a lot of you know different interpretations of what it means. And I think there's now in the United States, what I've witnessed is a move towards this concept of regeneration, regenerative economy, and that it's not good enough to sustain ourselves, but we also um, need to have this kind of circular regenerative improvement on, on things. And I think, you know, when, if you're talking about a, more emerging a frontier market, a least developing economy, then maybe sustainability in the kind of very narrow way of thinking about it in terms of just keeping things going as they are is not the best word because how they are is not okay, right? There's poverty and there's malnutrition, uh, lack of access to markets and to goods and to services. And so actually sustaining is probably not the goal, right? And so I think uh, there are definitely these kind of, kind of cultural differences. But overall, when I think about sustainability, I think about these four pillars, which I do think apply across. Um, and these four pillars are 
social cohesion, kind of social sustainability, economic well-being, including financial well-being, financial health, environmental protection and well-being. So our ecosystems, everything that depends on the environment, which is our economy, right? So once someone once said that the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary by of the environment. Um, and so very much uh, that is a, a strong pillar of sustainability. And then finally, which I, I always like to incorporate, is this idea of future generations and future thinking. Because we could imagine, I mean, we often do actually have a, a social, economic, and environmental system that can be quite myopic. And so sustainability pushes us forward to think about future generations beyond whatever is normal in our industry. So for for use of thinking about 30-year terms, then we should think about 50-year terms. If we're used to thinking about, you know, two to five years, we should push that boundary. And so beyond that, really, you know, our earth has been around and our ecosystem has been around for over, you know, 3.8 billion years. And so we've been around for a very short time compared to that. And so if we think a a bit more (laughs) long-term, I think we can go a long way. Yeah. Someone once told me that people really start to understand climate and climate impacts when they have grandchildren, because it really then gives them a window into a next generation or another century. um, And they begin to start to internalize the impacts of what they're doing. And so I always thought that was kind of a fascinating way to get people maybe to think uh, more longer term. I have a question for you, because it's my understanding that uh, you were able to attend uh, the Global Climate Summit uh, COP26 in Glasgow. Were there any any takeaways or any thoughts uh, from that event that you could share uh, with our listeners? Yes, that was my first COP. And I it may be my last COP. <laughs> I am. Um, I it, it's an interesting COP, right? It's, it's a COP that's in the middle of a global pandemic. So there are many things about the COP. It's it's a COP that comes after the U.S. removed itself from the Paris Agreement and then put itself put itself back in. And um, so there's lots of context behind uh, the this particular COP uh, or, or conference of the parties, the, the big uh, UN climate conference. And so I think there's a lot to unpack there about this particular convening. I think if this was your 26th COP then you likely have a, a more nuanced perspective and probably, you know, can list off the pros and the cons. This being, this having been my first cop, I have a more critical perspective. <laughs> and I was pretty disappointed in the outcomes, let's say. I I thought that based on all of the recent studies and evidence that we have now, so from the IPCC, from even from the IEA, the very conservative uh, International Energy Agency, which pretty much said we cannot expand financing into fossil fuels uh, for us to solve climate change, to keep life on Earth going um, in a livable way. And yet we didn't approach this or I didn't see the outcomes that match that level of urgency and all of the evidence we have now that maybe wasn't at our same uh, disposal before now. And so I I think my recommendations for the next COP would be to uh, definitely think about who's on the inside, actually at the negotiating table and who's on the outside and really uh, have a different approach to be more inclusive of those like the youth, like the younger generations 
who really have a big stake in this and really should be, you know, for each delegation, there really should be a youth delegate who negotiates officially for their countries, right? Yeah, that's not. I would agree. Yeah, (laughs) I would put my daughter right in the middle of that as well. I mean, just her perspective is just so much more passionate and urgent and sincere. I, I don't know how else to put it than others that I talk to. It, it, it is really very much a generational focus. Right. And, and so I think that was part of what I witnessed as a, as a challenge. And of course, it was also well documented that there were a lot of fossil fuel badges. So the fossil fuel industry, if it were a country having more access, more voice than any single country. So that's problematic um, as well. I think that the reason why I attended this COP was because it was the first time that private finance or commercially oriented finance, however you want to call it, was on the table, was present, was you know a part of the conversation in a more serious way. And so that's why I was there. So I followed quite a bit of the finance and investment activity, uh, which of course is not the core of you know official climate negotiations. I think that. There, ha- there has been progress, and that progress um, is not nearly close, I mean, even remotely close to what we need. Um, imagine if most of the banks who were present were B Corp banks. Right. Not the case. Not the case at all. Imagine if most of the banks present committed to phasing out fossil fuels in the next five, 10 years. Not the case. Or even, you know, by 2050, also not the case. <laughs> um, imagine if most of the banks present um, and a part of the various commitments were truly diverse and inclusive and approached climate lending with a climate justice lens, right? So in addition to counting the carbon and, and counting emissions, also taking a look at, well, where, in terms of our footprint, where are we concentrating our emissions? Is it disproportionately in poor communities, in communities of color, in poor countries? You know, really look at the justice angle in addition to the uh, pure climate impact or carbon impact angle. And so I think there's a lot of work to do. I um, I have seen progress post-COP, however, in this notion of offsets. So I think going in, there was a lot of momentum around offsets are going to save us. Carbon offsets, I, I actually heard from a, a chairperson of a major European bank, you know, a trillion dollar level, that we have to offset our way out of this problem and that we should plant oak trees. I mean, lit- quite literally, I was just flabbergasted. I mean, it was, you know, that was, <laughs> that was part wow. of I, that's the kind of environment that I was in, right? Um, yeah. Global banking community and, and comments like that. And I, and I will say, now we even see uh, Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of England, speaking about how actually, no, we cannot offset our way out of this. Right. Um, we have to actually reduce our carbon emissions and our, those activities. We need the action plans to do that and decarbonize. And so I think, you know, perhaps part of the silver lining is that there was so much kind of bad press um, criticism over many parts of the COP that I think hopefully now there there's a, a real reckoning happening and shifting in approaches. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. And I, if I could take you one way to to where banks uh, are engaging, and while it's not the solution, I, I would say it's really the beginning of it all. Let's talk a little bit about PCAF and what's going on with the Partnership for Carbon Accounting for Financials. How do you see that kind of in your own words? How, how do you kind of describe what PCAF is and what impact it can have? Right. So PCAF started in the Netherlands among the Dutch pension funds and banks coming together to harmonize the approach by which they measure and disclose and reduce the carbon emissions of their loans and investments, right? So it's finance emissions, it's the core business of a bank uh, is to provide these loans and lines of credit. And so we had supported the global expansion and still do support the global expansion of PCAF to be a true partnership. So we helped to bring it to the United States and to other parts of the world. And what I'm proud of is that when we brought it to the United States, we were not dragged down by the laggards in the industry. Meaning we started with the banks and the credit unions that have ESG in their DNA. So environmental social governance metrics in their DNA. So we started with uh, the CDFI banks, credit unions, or the or and the B Corp banks, um, the banks that are part of GABVI, the Global Alliance for Banking on Values, for example. I mean, all of this this ecosystem of values based, ESG oriented financial institutions, and we had held the line with those institutions in bringing it to the U.S. And then we brought in the laggards to come come up to this level. Oftentimes, historically, what's happened is that. I think there's a tendency to go with the largest bank or the largest financial institution and say, well, if we can get them on board to do this thing, then everyone else will join in, right, given their size. And the truth is what happens or what has happened in the past is a lot is watered down and they bring down the ambition as opposed to come coming up to an ambition. And so... I think we were able to maintain the integrity of PCAF in this process, and I'm really proud of that. Um, PCAF, uh, for each financial asset class, provides a methodology to measure uh, greenhouse gas emissions. It builds on the greenhouse gas, gas protocol, which is also currently being updated, um, but is the foundation for carbon accounting in general for the non-financial companies. And it is comprehensive, so across auto loans, mortgages, commercial real estate, bonds, corporate loans, so on and so forth. Yeah, perfect. And so, I mean, I can speak uh, maybe from being each one of those, a member of the Global Alliance, as well as a B Corp bank and a CDFI. Uh, and we had submitted our data, Sunrise Banks, we submitted our, our loan portfolio data. I think we just got it back. We were looking at those uh, results now. I think we got it yesterday, as a matter of fact. And our wow. whole, we're gearing up to disclose in the first quarter. And then where I think for us, really where the rubber meets the road is, uh, what's our strategy to act? Um, right. How do we get in alignment with the Paris Agreement? How do we engage with our clients? How do we engage um, or screen out certain loan portfolio class types and screen in others uh, that we want to incent? And so it's really that, how do we get to action as fast as possible and really show a path forward for other banks and credit unions and financial cooperatives around the world that we can do this. And but it is going to take yeah, commitment for one and courage for another in which to 
uh, make a sizable and measurable impact and, and lead the way. Right. Well, I'm excited for that. And I would love to hear how you strategize based on that data, because that is part of the the effort is to have that visibility first and then decide, okay, how to, how to best act, right, to, to improve and bring down the emissions. Exactly. And maybe in true Sunrise form as kind of a social entrepreneurial organization, uh, which happens to be a bank, uh, we're going to make it up and we're going to figure it out. And some things are going to work and some things aren't going to work, but we've, we've got to take the mindset of action as opposed to we're going to study this for another year. So right. we just kind of feel that sense of urgency to try things and lead. And if we fail, it's just a learning in disguise and, and we're going to keep going and, and share what we learn with others so they don't have to make that mistake. So very much looking for a community, if you will, uh, in in PCAF financials to to engage with. And that could be across the banking sector, insurance, obviously real estate finance, bonds, However it may be, there might be gleams of collaboration and, and knowledge that can be shared to accelerate all of us in the, in the process. So if I could, Marilyn, I want to shift you a little bit into, well, I got to touch on this real quick because I'm a fintech guy and a guy. How do you feel fintech plays a role in the environmental, the sustainable banking world to lack of any better term? So we funded a comprehensive landscape of this nexus between fintech and climate, climate fintech from New Energy Nexus, which is an accelerator um, and a clean energy uh, support ecosystem for startups in clean energy and climate solutions. Globally, it started in California. It used to be called the California Clean Energy Fund, and now it's gone global, including with a presence in China and Uganda and um, Indonesia and other parts of the world. And in New York, I guess, if we want to count that as another part of the world <laughs> beyond California. Um, and so the climate fintech landscape really, it was a breakthrough report in that it helped elucidate what we meant, what we mean by climate fintech, what are the various verticals, including reg tech and insure tech and all the ways you can utilize technology and financial technology for uh, some type of climate end. And there there has been a lot of movement there. We also funded the first cards and payments challenge. Um, so kind of a mini accelerator in climate fintech where we, we've we seen or we were able to provide non-deletive funding to startups who uh, were innovating in, in climate fintech through in the energy nexus, of course. And so, you know, everything from uh, Accountable, which is a U.S., do you know Accountable? Yeah. Um, it's a U.S.-based um, app, so you know uh, everyone can download it. It is it brings transparency to uh, any transaction that you do. So you safely link your bank card or whatever you use to um, to do most of your purchasing, and it will. And you also choose your uh, what's most important to you. So, for example, is it gender equity, racial equity? climate action, um, local, supporting local businesses, uh, things of that nature. And you can, like me, choose like, everything's very important, five out of five on everything, you know, the, most, the strictest. So, but you can, you have that flexibility. And then based on that, they will also bring transparency to not only the scoring of what you um, are purchasing and the company behind that, but also where they're drawing their data from, because there's a lot of different databases and ways of approaching this um, broader ESG uh, landscape. And so I recently found out when I was making, I, I went, stopped at um, one of the kind of book stands 
in Union Station in Washington, D.C., so near the Amtrak state or in the Amtrak station. And I, from the app, I, I learned that that was not aligned with my goals <laughs> um, on, on gender equality in particular. And they also proposed uh, alternatives. And it turns out Wawa is like one of the best alternatives according to uh, what I, I find to be uh, ESG aligned. And so that kind of information I would have never gotten, right, otherwise. Oh, that is fantastic. And it was the one thing that struck me the most about that Climate First report was the power of fintech and data and how it can be used so quickly in which to provide feedback and change behavior. Uh, and it is really somewhat of the magic of fintech is it, it's obviously digital. And as a result of that, when used, I think, responsibly and appropriate, particularly with AI, you can really get some powerful information quick and make decisions accordingly of I'm going to shop here or buy here or eat here uh, as opposed to somewhere else. And and um, not to mention really giving you that feedback on those things that you're most concerned about, whether it's environmentally or socially. And so, yeah, really fantastic. So yes, I would love to switch. You uh, wrote a book, Sustainability at Work and uh, careers that make a difference. And one of the things about the Next Gen Banker podcast is really the ability to get this conversation out to, I'll say, people interested in finance, but also very much ingrained from a value standpoint of that social environmental aspect. Tell me a little bit about what was your motivation for, for writing the book in the first place? And were there, were there any kind of little bit of ahas as you were going through the development of the book process? Right. So I had studied engineering for sustainable development. And then when I started to work in the field, so in a nuclear uh, spent fuel recycling plant in, in France, um, I remember having a particular conversation. I was working a night shift um, as a safety kind of a safety operations engineer. And I was speaking with a fellow engineer about what I had studied and, you know, civil environmental engineering easy enough. And then when it came to this sustainable development thing, <laughs> sustainability thing, it was just mind boggling for the, from, for my fellow colleague. And, uh, I realized, but for me, I was completely doing the work. I, I was improving operationally looking to improve on the waste and reducing the chemical use in the, in the plant. And for me, it was like a no brainer. Um, yet I think I was living in a bubble around, you know, everyone else, around me was also studying this. And, and so what I wanted to do with the, by writing this book is really uh, bring to more people the fact that you can integrate sustainability in almost any job and career path. And if we're going to solve some of our major challenges like climate change, um, then we actually have to, we actually don't even have a choice. We need to get the system going and that requires not just what we can do, you know, when we're at home, but what we're we can do when we're at work. Yeah, definitely. And and whether I it was interesting. I haven't read the book yet. I scanned the uh, the the contents page, and you're right. No matter whether you're a teacher, or a banker, or a lawyer, it, it you you can ingrain sustainability into everything and every lens. And as you mentioned, you, you we have to. It, it's just the mindset we need to shift. So. If I can press you on the next gen banker question. So when we think about what does the next generation of banker look like, what comes to mind? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think it definitely looks colorful, like more heterogeneous. Um, the next gen banker, as you were saying, is more innovative. I think leaning into the to the tech doesn't shy away from tech, user friendliness. I think also when I say innovation, also for example, structuring green loans that don't have the same track record as fossil fuels, and for some projects, no track record at all. I think um, bankers can apply a framework that I developed called SURF, which is in the book. Um, SURF stands for supply chain, user relationships, and future orientation. And I think applying this framework was also very helpful in uh, for the next-gen banker. I think um, tracking the carbon emissions, reducing those emissions, uh, tracking human capital and demographics, and reducing the bias, all of these things, I think, have to be part of the toolkit of the next-gen banker. Um, I would encourage... Uh, more syndication. So one way of managing, if we're going to take on more innovation, more tech, you know, some might hear, oh, more risk. Well, maybe we can manage that risk by partnering and syndicating. Um, and then I would like to see more banks become B Corp banks or equivalents. Um, and I think there's such potential, right? In the United States alone, there's over 5,000 banks and over 5,000 credit unions. Of course, there's been a lot of consolidation. <laughs> um However, there's there's a lot to work with in terms of uh, ingraining more sustainability into banking and lending. You know, one thing I'll just say because of your audience, um, one of the, my pet peeves is just the amount of inefficiency that I see happening, especially among the ESG-oriented banks. So, for example, oftentimes there isn't a, a foreign currency desk dedicated to an ESG-aligned bank or a sustainable bank. Um, and then the bank has to rely on some other unsustainable bank for the certain services. Well, what if all the good banks got together and sourced their own backends for international transactions and foreign currency? Um, I think there's a lot of that kind of thing. I think the credit union industry does some of that pretty well. I would love to see it on the on the banking side and just kind of you know use that collective nature and that alignment. And so, yes, maybe sometimes you compete, often not though, oftentimes, you don't really. It's the different markets, different strategies. Um, but even still, you're, even at you know, if you look at the largest six banks in the U.S., they, they, there's a lot of syndication, a lot of collaboration, and it would seem to me that we could have even more impact if there would be that kind of efficiency gains in, in collaborating. Well, Marilyn, we are so on the same page, particularly in regards to that issue, because I was just talking about it about a couple of weeks ago um, within the context of the GABV and what correspondent banking could look like uh, for the organization as a whole and its members. So um, we're on it. We're, we're trying to get it done. Yay. So Marilyn, thank you so much for joining uh, today. Your insights have been super valuable and how we can use banking and finance uh, as a force for good and, and for sustainability. Again, thanks for all you do out there and appreciate you being on the podcast. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Elizabeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship 
so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.